The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. All right, you may be seated. Um, I'm going to read a prayer to you based on the Lord's Prayer, and then just after that, we're going to have the Petty family uh, come on up. So, uh, if, But before we do that, if you would join me, this, this prayer is patterned after the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to uh, apply it uh, to our lives. So join me. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, because you are our creator, and in you we find our identity. All of our longings point to you, and without you we grope forward in vain. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on a week like this, when the kingdoms of this world are posturing and entering into war, we see the damage the deceptive heart can do. And God, your kingdom brings peace and flourishing. We long to see your kingdom grow here and for wars to cease. Please come to the aid of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and help our nation and the world's leaders to know what to do to seek peace and justice. Give us this day our daily bread because we obsess over our needs. Help us to believe that you know what we need even more than we do. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because your mercy is the key to our own mercy. We need to know your mercy more to give to others what you have freely given to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for our ancient enemy pursues like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Cause us to be firm in our faith, and help our unbelief. For to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, so you heard, uh, you heard Michaela read from the book of Romans, and we're going to uh, jump into this third idea, this third foundation of our faith. So we have, in the last three weeks, we've discussed Scripture uh, John last week talked to us about just the, the concept of God, and this week uh, is the idea of Christ. And, uh, and I, I am one that I see Christ figures uh, everywhere, some purposeful, some incidental. Uh, if you go to movies with me, uh, you will see this. But, um, but I, uh, you see purposeful ones, like a lyric that just came to my head um, was from, from the rapper Comet, for example. So you know, and he says, they say my life is compar- comparable to Christ's, the way I sacrificed and resurrected twice. And you hear that and you go, that sounds bold uh, to say about yourself. And it, and it, it is. It's probably inappropriate. Um, but then you have moments, like I got an email this morning, and uh, David French 
was talking about, about the Ukrainian president, um, President Zelensky, and he said, you know, when a man meets the moment and said, it's one thing to say, this is David French, it's one thing to say, I will lead you. It's another thing entirely to say, I am with you and to demonstrate it and to demonstrate it by laying your own life on the line. And he spent his entire article talking about why the, the response uh, to, to Zelensky has been so positive, why there are people from other countries joining the Ukrainian army, why you know, pharmacists and, uh, and school teachers are taking up arms to fight alongside of him is because they're looking at this man and saying, you are with us. You are staying with us when other leaders, even, even in their own world, had, would, have, would have run and have run in the past, right? But I especially, as I mentioned, I see Christ figures in the movies. And, and my list is long. Um, here's my favorite, The Iron Giant, right? This is one of my favorite movies, and I know it's a kid's movie. And, uh, and I used to get in trouble for showing it to Abby when she was too young. You know, Michaela would be like, Are you, isn't that a little dark? And she's, she's doing fine. She's fine. Um, but the Iron Giant is, is from another world uh, and, and comes here to earth and, and is rejected um, and turned upon and blamed. And as the humans are set on destroying him, they realize that they will destroy themselves and he chooses to be destroyed in their place. And there's something moving. Brad Bird uh, wrote this film and, and so many of Brad Bird's films do the same thing. You can kind of look at his at his, as his work, and there's this theme. What, what is it about that kind of sacrificial savior? Um, or to, to just touch on a newer movie, Spider-Man, a child, a son who's superhuman, willing to be forgotten to save his beloved and his friend, right? And of course, the one that, that leapt to our minds as a staff this week, A Quiet Place, um, John Krasinski, um, you know, of office fame, uh, appears to lean into his Catholic roots when his character, who he plays, who is a father, steps b- between his disabled but untrusting and sometimes rebellious child and her alien predator and says, I love you. you know, I have always loved you as he takes the wrath instead of her. The Christ figures, right? And I, I see it all over the place. There's a reason that these get woven into some of our best stories and some of our most meaningful works of art. And these are all getting at the concept of the sacrificial savior from different angles. Um, the, the one who's rejected, suffering to save humanity, the son or the father taking on what nobody else can do. And Christ figures are just, this is a literary device. Um, the, to, to write a Christ figure into literature is, it's a known literary device but none uh, seem to encapsulate all the themes as well as the, the Christ of Christianity. Um, our church's confession in the 20th article uh, of the Belgic Confession, which is one of five sections on Christ, he gets a lot of space for good reason, but listen to how well-rounded this is. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent the Son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed. And that's our nature. In order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. So God made known his justice toward his Son, 
who was charged with our sin. And he poured out his goodness and mercy on us who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his son to die by a most perfect love and raising him to life for our justification in order that by him we might have immortality and eternal life. There are Christ figures, but none can compare with Jesus. So this evening, I just want to unpack for you the concept of Christ. What does it mean, the presence of Christ, and encourage you to embrace Christ? So the concept of Christ. The word Christ simply means anointed one uh, or chosen one. It's, and in that simple definition, there were a number of Christs um, in ancient days. There are a number of them now. Um, even in the Bible, kings were anointed to lead the people. And in a, in a real sense, they, they received that anointing that this word refers to. Commanders were chosen to lead people. Revolutionaries were raised up. And people thought, maybe this is the one chosen to lead us. Maybe this, they would have said, is Christ. Priests were ordained um, to, to stand in the place of others. They were chosen and called to that work. Women like Esther um, were viewed as raised up by God for such a time as this. And, and so in a sense, there were many Christ figures, even in the scriptures, but they always fell short, and they always do. Um, they, were they would be chosen for one thing, but they would fail in another. Esther probably wasn't chaste. King David was guilty of murder and adultery, and even worse than that, really, if you look into the story, the priests were legalists, and the, the revolutionaries failed. And I'm sure that can feel familiar to many of us. If you, uh, if you grew up with heroes in the church, many of us have had one of them fall and fail us, right? Um, for, for me, my childhood hero, for those of you who are old enough to remember, was Jose Canseco. That did not go well for me at all. Um, but look, you know, I, I'm not immune to this. I've said this uh, before here. This is where we're a little, little community, a little church, but Maybe, you know, you come here and you go, I like, I like how Andy leads the church. Well, here, I'm going to just let you know. I'm just going to tell you. Just wait. I will let you down. I will absolutely fail you. It's, I, it's not that I might. I will. And John will, and our elders will, and our deacons will, and all the leaders of the table will let down those folks, and, and all of you here. We will. We cannot hold the mantle. I may be called or chosen by God to do something, but I will fall short. I always do. I always say this. We used to have confession before the sermon, and that was very helpful to me because every time I get up here to talk to you all, my motives are mixed. I wonder what you're thinking of me. I wonder what, you know, if anybody's going to come back next week. I, I can't even get up here just to, to the glory of God. I can't even preach for the right reasons, right? Which is why I need confession time. But we all long to have a person we can put our hope in. We do, a hero, a Christ. Why do we long for it? Why do we write about it? Why do we make movies about it? Why are we so let down with the unsatisfactory attempts toward it in real life or in the movies? I was, even when I brought up Spider-Man earlier this week, John started telling me how people had debated with the previous versions of Spider-Man if they really got to the, the core of the problem, right? We see, even in literature, we see these, we see these Christ figures and, ah, they didn't really get it. They didn't really hit on the, the complexity, right, of that. And even if you aren't religious, um, 
even, even if some of us aren't religious, we want one who represents us. We want a leader. We want the scholar who understands us and speaks from our perspective, but with weight and authority. We want somebody who will save us, the romantic relationship that will fill in the missing space, a defender or one who understands, um, and even more, I've never met anyone who didn't see the beauty of a sacrificial savior, right? And maybe this is why songs like, you know, there's a song like, I Would Die For You by Prince, like, Everyone likes that song. And guess what? That song is actually about Jesus, in case you didn't know. So the concept of Christ is the concept of the anointed one. It's a universal concept. It's a desire that shows up all across humanity. It shows up in literature and film. And it's clearly, it does come from a desire that we humans have. But the question is, is that all there is to it? Is that all there is to it? I suppose the, the, the deeper question would be, did these longings develop out of meaninglessness or are they innate longings anchored in the existence of an actual Christ? So that leads to our second idea, the presence of Christ. Where does this idea come from? If we humans are the product of a meaningless process, then our hopes for someone greater than us to save us and give us meaning or stand for us or fill the void are ways that we just cope until our meaningless death. That would be true. But if we were made to be dependent, if we were made for relationship, if our longings point to reality, if there's something greater we were meant to know and be connected to, then our Christ figures are at their worst mediocre and fallen replacements, but at their best, signs pointing to the way, the truth, and the life. Um, there's a, a philosophical way of thinking about this, the argument from desire, and C.S. Lewis is known for, for using this argument. And on a day of a baby dedication, it's a good one because he says the, the child is born desiring to be fed. Why? Because food is real. You don't desire something that is not real. You don't desire something you cannot have. So it is with many of the spiritual things the human heart desires. We don't desire them because they are false or made up. We desire them because they are real. As Switchfoot sings, the shadow proves the sunshine. That's the idea. And so, as you could guess, a foundation of our faith, we, we're basing this on our other two foundations, what God has revealed in Scripture, and upon the belief of a, of a relational and good God, as John talked to us about last week. But we, we believe not only that God sent Jesus into the world to be Christ to us, but that the Christ concept was not ever invented, but has always been. It's not as if God um, looked down at some point and said, whoa, those humans have really messed up um, and I need to help them. It means that the Son of God was anointed or chosen because it was always in the character of God to advocate for, serve, give, love, forgive, and lay down his life. That is why Jesus is the Christ. Paul, in his letter of encouragement to the Church of Ephesians, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he opens the book. 
who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And, and for Paul to say that God chose people in Christ before the foundation of the world is a massive idea. It means the concepts of grace and forgiveness were in the heart of God before we messed anything up. They're part of who God is. In Genesis, there's a garden, right? And it's, it's really the proto or the first temple. Um, it, it's an interesting thing to think about, but just trust me on this for the moment. It is where people walked and talked with God. They ate of the tree of life. They worshiped and prayed, in other words, and from which they were sent out into the world that they were to fill and have dominion over. So they had worship and prayer in the garden. Their mission was out in the world. And within this temple, there were things that, as within the temple of Israel, that you couldn't touch. There were things that were too holy. They were off limits that you couldn't handle. And for them, it was the knowledge of good and evil. But in them, we fell from our innocence there as people. And no matter how you feel about that narrative or how you know, it might seem like that could have happened or not, I've never met anyone who wouldn't say that they've never met an innocent person. That if humanity was ever innocent, that it must have fallen at some point. And so knowing that, that none of us are innocent, Listen to what this story tells us that God did. What did we immediately hear from God amidst the serpent's curse? There's a Christological promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, which is a death blow, and you will bruise his heel, which is a minor injury. Clearly, this promise was going beyond the mere natural plane because, you know, do, do serpents really spread guilt, like guilt to their offspring? Is that, is that how that would work? I mean, this must be about the evil that was represented by the serpent and God himself. This must have been a spiritual reality. But yet, it isn't disconnected from human expectations. Because even Adam and Eve, you can tell it in the naming of their first son, they believed that a man would be born who would save them. They thought it would be their first son, most likely. They believed a man would be born who would save them, a Christ, a person they could hope in. And I want to suggest to you that humanity has longed for this ever since we were created. Now, there are other incredible moments in the Bible, kind of key moments that unpack this idea a little, little bit further. Abraham is visited um, by a man who makes great promises to him in Genesis 18, but then he says that this was the Lord, that this man who he experienced was actually God, Yahweh. Um, interestingly, um, so Jacob, Abraham's grandson, has this wrestling match with a man 
who blesses him and changes his identity to Israel. But Jacob says, I strove or I wrestled with the Lord. The name of God's people that he has given, Israel, by the way, which has always been an encouragement to me, means the people that wrestle with God or he who wrestles with God. So if any of you in here have ever felt like faith is a little difficult for you or that God's will is something that you struggle to accept or believe, you, um, you might just have the mark of one of God's people. That's their identity. It's not that faith is easy. They wrestle with God. They, they deal with God personally. But in the case of Jacob, he wrestles this man and declares, I wrestled with God. And how could that happen? God had to have entered into human experience, into the flesh, and changed things, shaped things, shaped these men of faith's lives and changed their their trajectory. And I could go on with other examples of this, but my point here is the presence of Christ is presented in the Bible. And it's not just this, this mystical God presence, but it's not merely a human presence It's a God in human flesh presence that is deep and meaningful and important. And all Christ figures just point us in this direction. Some because of how they bless us, some because of their mercy, some because of their sacrifice, some because of their suffering, but they all point to God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is an incredible figure in human history, and here's why. Because he checks all the boxes. That's what's incredible. That's why you can't, get, you can't get rid of him. He continues to come back. He checks all the boxes. I mean, not only does he begin his ministry with Isaiah 61 and say, by the way, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he gets to the end of it and says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, which is huge. Not, I mean, he said that. He claimed to be the Christ in saying that. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. That means I'm the Christ. Not only did he do that, but he fills out the entire definition of what we have been looking for. Does he stand up to power? Yes, he stands up to power, but with a discernment that none of us could ever claim. He brought healing. He taught with authority in such a way that even the children loved to gather to him and listen. He drove the serpent's offspring out of men and women. He had spiritual power, and he transformed them into adopted sons and daughters, But also he had enough humility to go up on the mountain and pray and to subject himself to the will of God. Like Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, Jesus was tempted in the desert, but he prevailed. And then in his crowning work, he lays down his life, but he didn't remain in the grave. He rises victorious. So not only did he live through our human experience, and was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin, as the book of Hebrews says, and suffered rejection and abandonment in his life. But he tasted the bitterness of being banished from the garden presence of the Father in his death, and the horrors of the judgment of God in his descent into the bowels of spiritual darkness. Yet he prevailed. Why? Because this was the plan of God. He was the anointed one to show us the salvation, the mercy, the grace, the power of our God. He is the Christ. So the presence of Christ is this. He is, he was, and he always will be. Embracing Christ. Our friend Rod, who uh, some of you met last week, 
uh, gave me. He pulled out some books from his, uh, his little Jeep on Monday, and he said, hey, I'm about to take these to Bookman's, and I grabbed a couple out, and one was Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And that, as I was working on the sermon later in the day, it jogged my memory um, of a historic conversion that I think might be instructive uh, for some of us. But I just want to acknowledge that in this room, we often have a few who are just cracking the door on faith and peeking in, and we love that. Um, C.S. Lewis, who I mentioned earlier, who made that argument from desire, that was his story. Um, there was a point where he was just cracking the door and peeking in. He, wasn't, he was probably you know, quite antagonistic uh, to Christianity, but he moved from atheism to faith, and a story like his could be really, really helpful uh, to look into and to read. Um, but then there are those of us who profess faith, but as Jesus warned, the weeds or cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth can threaten to choke out the word. And there are many stories out there of, of wake-up calls where people have, you know, they've been consumed by the cares of life, haven't been looking at the preeminence of Jesus Christ, and that something happens in their life that wakes them up where they say, this is what I need, this is everything, and they give their life to it. But the story I want to tell you today is for another class of us, and that is a class of us who believe we should be following Jesus and carrying his kingdom into the world already. We're convinced. We want to do great things for God. Maybe we even want to preach Christ. But we have little to no connection to Christ ourselves. And this reminds me of John Wesley. And this is where Luther's commentary comes in. Because John Wesley came to the United States as a missionary from England uh, to preach to the heathen. And in 1738, as he was here um, trying to reach people for Christ, he wrote and lamented, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? He's starting to see, I, I came to do this work to get things done for God, but I don't really love God. I don't, it doesn't click. I don't know he in whom I have, have professed belief and he discovered that despite his zeal to convert people, he didn't love God deeply himself. So he came home, and he went to a Bible study. He happened to go to a Moravian Bible study, which, just if you want to know who they are, these were German Christians that came before the German Reformation began. Uh, so this was a small band of Christians, and they had been essentially banished from Germany. They ended up in England. And so after the Reformation, who would they read? They would read the great German Martin Luther. That's who they would read because this is, this is their heritage. It's probably written in German. And John Wesley went to a Bible study where they were reading not the commentary, but the introduction to the commentary. And I, I heard recently there was a, a Scottish guy who's become a pretty well-known believer, and he found, he was staying at somebody's house when he was, uh, he'd gotten out of prison and had nowhere to go live, and they had Matthew Henry's commentary on the shelf. If you haven't seen that commentary, there's an abridged version. He didn't find that. It's like volumes and volumes. It's long. It's old. It's dry. He read the whole thing, this guy from Scotland, and was converted. Okay, John Wesley heard the introduction to a commentary. I don't know anybody. Have, have any of you even read a commentary? Zach. All right. There's always Zach. Okay, we got two. Zach and Steve. Commentaries aren't normally where you go for inspiration or where you go to, to study but he read the, he heard the introduction of the commentary, and this is what he wrote after he walked away from hearing that. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. 
Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And John, John Wesley was changed. You can see the trajectory of his life. Many of you grew up in churches that exist because of the life of John Wesley. If I had to guess, I'd say a third of us um, grew up in churches that came from his legacy. Now, so I thought of that. I'd been given this commentary. I'd never read it before. I thought, I guess I should read the introduction right, to the commentary. And I read it, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. This is why I think John Wesley came to Christ. Because Martin Luther, in his commentary, he immediately jumps below the bare words, below the bare concepts, and he goes straight to the heart of the matter. He shows, he says, look, you've, you've heard words like law and righteousness. Let's get to the bottom of this. And he says, when you hear the word law, you might think things like keeping the rules, but let me declare to you that when it says the word law, it's speaking of the absolute and perfect will of God which gets to the bottom of the heart, which means that not only is it impossible for you to keep probably the rules of the, of the laws within the Bible, but, but more than that, the Bible isn't just asking you to keep the rules, it's asking you to keep the rules for the reasons that God gives, which are that you should keep them because you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That should be your motive for every single law and if you break one at any little inch, even within your motivational drive, then you are guilty of law-breaking. Entirely, you have broken the law. And so he said, so it is so impossible for anyone to be justified by the law that there is only one available option for you, and that is that you would receive a righteousness alien to yourself that belongs to somebody else and that you would have to believe and hope in it with all of your heart. And that is what has been provided to us by Christ. And John Wesley heard that and all his little obedience, even little obedience like sailing and cross an entire ocean to go reach people for Christ, all of a sudden that idea of him being a good, faithful servant of God crumbled down to the ground, and he said, all I have is Jesus. Now, that can sound like bad news in a way, that all the things we do um, can't ever be done for the right reasons, but the truth is, it's the best news ever, because it means that the rat race ends. You no longer need to strive to be good enough for God or good enough to meet up to the standards of others Or even more than that, in our day, it's good enough to meet up to the standards of yourself. If you ever look in the mirror and you look and you say, I am not what I should be, the Bible gives you permission to say, that's right, that's true, but because of the work of Jesus, I have been given all the love and acceptance I could ever hope for, despite it. You can accept that you are not worthy, but look to Christ who was, who came and lived the life you should have lived and died the death that we deserve and rose from the dead, not just as a display of power, but as a display that you can have hope deep within your heart. Though we're talking about the foundational beliefs of Christianity, Christianity isn't just received through a religious text, nor is it merely 
ascending to a state of belief in God. It is also relational and experimental. And the truth is those two things are one. The Jesus that you read about in the history books, the Jesus that you read about in the Bible is the lawmaker, is the scripture speaker, and he entered in to creation and lived with us. It's a little bit like marriage. Marriage was, was meant to be a figure of this for us. It, it's, a, it's a figure of the gospel. And in a marriage, you know who this person is, sure. You can know the facts about them. You can know like, ah, this is a female I'm dealing with here, about, you know, five foot 11, it appears. And you can, you can know all that stuff. And you can know the words, the promises that they make. They said, oh, I'll, I'll never leave you or forsake you until death do us part. You can know all of that, of course, but it's always going to be more than that because you want to know the person. And, and you want to be known. And they want to love and be loved, and so do you. It's being forgiven when you fail. It's learning to love from the bottom of your heart and being won over by love. The same is true of Christianity. It isn't just the facts. It isn't just the words. It's the relationship. It's having a person, a Christ, the Christ. It's not just ascending to the doctrine. It's seeing that God descended to us in Christ and became both incredibly accessible to us and he has the heart-transforming character traits of mercy and grace given at a great cost to himself. Think of it this way. It is seen that God looked at the world that he descended to and had turned on him and took the death that they were aiming at him in their place. It's that God the Son was willing to be forgotten, even forsaken by God the Father, to save his beloved and lay down his life for his friends. It's that Christ, God the Father, said that in Christ, sorry, God the Father said to his disabled, untrusting, and rebellious children, I love you. I have always loved you. And that he stood before that otherworldly evil and died a sacrificial death in our place. It's that he said to us, not only will I lead you, I am with you. And I put my life on the line. And that has power to change our hearts toward God and lead us to walk in his ways. And if you caught all those movie references in there, go watch A Quiet Place too, because even John Krasinski knows that when you've seen that kind of sacrificial love, it can enable you to walk through a broken world filled with people who need transformation and lean into hope. Watch the movie. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he gives his life for his friends. Would you let that warm your heart? Would you even consider trusting that that might be true for you, even your, even your sins, even the ways that you fall short of doing everything for the right reasons, even the ways that you fall short of your own standards? And would you consider his invitation? When Jesus sat with his disciples, um, all of whom struggled, none of whom were perfect, you got Peter who denied him, you've got Thomas who was going to doubt him, you had Judas who betrayed him. Jesus looked at every single one of them 
when he broke bread and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you, even me. And this is my blood of a new covenant, a covenant, a promise that teaches you to love from the bottom of your heart is what it is, poured out for the forgiveness of many. The invitation tonight is to confess faith and trust in Jesus, but not just words, not just facts, to know him, to experience him, Jesus, the chosen one, the Christ. Right now we're going to do a few different things together. We're going to take a time of silent confession. And this is a chance for you to sit with Jesus. I don't know what what this may have stirred for you. Perhaps there's a conversation you need to have with him. Perhaps it's about the motives of your heart. Perhaps it has to do with your trust in him. And just have that conversation. There's two minutes of silence for you. And then we're going to come back uh, this evening, actually, because our first song, uh, a video has gone around of uh, a home church and a family in Ukraine singing the song that we were going to we were going to come out of confession with. So we're going to start with hearing them sing, and then we'll, we'll sing along with them. And then um, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. If, uh, if you can see Jesus in this, if you can see what he's done for you, even if you just have a little mustard seed of faith, you're welcome to his table. He doesn't require anything but that you trust him. Giving is in the back, as always. That's just how you help us minister to one another. And the key component of all of this is that you do it from the bottom of your heart. So as we confess, sing, give, eat together, do it all for the glory of God. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll enter into confession. Father in heaven, you are good and faithful and true, and in Jesus you reveal to us that your character is gracious, merciful, long-suffering, kind. All the things you call us to do, you have already done. All the character traits you demand of us are the character traits that you have within yourself and that you have lived and exhibited toward us. How is it that we could be made righteous because of your righteousness? How is it that we could be forgiven because of your sacrifice. You are a loving and good God. In Christ, we see who you are deeply. Move our hearts. Warm us toward you. Help our unbelief. And lead us now as we pray.